All right, good morning, everybody. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, on this day you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us in our day by the same Spirit to have a right understanding in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy consolation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. The verse of the week, Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 3, 15. Let's speak this together. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Okay? I is who? God. Yes. Yes. Christ. I, why does it have to be Christ? If you're sitting at the long tables, you can swing your, you can swing your chairs out, whatever's comfortable. You don't have to crane your necks. Um, who, why does it have to be Christ? I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be, but why is it better to look at it as Christ's words? Because he's a shepherd. Yeah, because he is what shepherd? The good shepherd. The good shepherd. Because Christ is the shepherd, and he is sending out Shepherds, And what would we call the shepherds that Christ sends out? Pastors, Pastors yes. Is, can you think of a term that uses the word shepherd? What would a pastor call himself as it relates to Christ being the good shepherd? The yes, he is the under-shepherd. Why is a pastor an under-shepherd? Yes, because he does shepherd's work, but the sheep are not his sheep. He's doing the shepherd's work, but his boss is the shepherd who owns the sheep. He is the under-shepherd. He is not the one who's in charge, but he does the same work that his master does. So Christ says, I will give you. Give you is important too, because if he's the one doing the giving, what is it that you are doing? receiving. Right. So he is the one doing the giving. I will be the one to provide you with shepherds, which he does. And what kind of shepherds is he going to give you? Shepherds. Yeah, like me. And we'll talk about what that means. Whoops. When we get to the catechism. I will give you shepherds like me. What is the job of the shepherds? Yeah, but can you use the language of the verse? Feed. feed. Who will feed? Where, now this is from Jeremiah, but can you think of someplace in the New Testament where you get this language? I will give you shepherds who will feed. 
think of, say, Peter. What does Jesus tell Peter? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That is the command that is not only given to Peter. Whoops. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's a command that's not only given to Peter, but through Peter given to all who hold the office of the ministry. Peter is the chief of the apostles. So the command that's given to Peter is, one, reinstating Peter, but two, also a command that goes out to everybody who then holds that same apostolic office. And what are they going to feed you with? Knowledge and understanding. But what does this mean? What is knowledge and what is understanding? Pardon me? Okay, knowing God, yes. Is it intellectual? If I say, I'm going to feed you with knowledge in church today, so be sure that you bring your notebooks and pens so you can take notes so you don't forget the knowledge that I'm giving you, is that synonymous with what Jesus is saying? No. What's the difference? Yeah, okay. It's a matter of faith. This has nothing to do with your intellect. Uh, I'm going to give. I'm going to teach you things you didn't know before. I mean, the Lord will do that, and the shepherds are called to teach. But that's not what He's talking about here. Feeding you with knowledge and understanding. Think about, like the in in um, Proverbs, the whole dialogue about wisdom, preparing the feast. Who is the personification of wisdom? Jesus is wisdom. Who is the truth? Jesus. Who is the one who is true understanding? Jesus. So it's not only about, I mean, it's not really about intellect. When he says, I'm going to feed you with knowledge and with understanding, it means I am going to feed you with the word. But remember how I taught you to think about the word. The word is a person. I'm going to feed you with the word, which is a person. So how is it then that you eat? How is it that you are fed with the word? Okay, yeah, that's the obvious one. And then think of another, think of it in terms of the liturgy. How are you fed? Obviously, the entire liturgy revolves around the sacrament and is geared to getting you to that final point. That's the high point of the entire service. So that's the obvious answer. But what is the second tier thing? What's the part of the service that fills you up with the understanding of what you're going to receive and fills you with the yearning and tells you all about the thing that you're going to be receiving? Well, what part of the liturgy? I mean, yeah, the whole liturgy does that, but there's a specific part. That's your hint. The sermon, the preaching. 
So, how are you fed with the word? You are fed with the word that is the person through the sacraments, and specifically in terms of the divine service, liturgy, the Lord's Supper, the body and blood, and with the proclamation of the gospel. So that the preaching of the gospel is not just me telling you a story. It is actually the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus spoken by Jesus, delivered by the Spirit of Jesus, because Jesus is present right there. So the point of every sermon is to make you go at the end, Amen, Amen, I love this Jesus, where is he? Every single sermon is supposed to be like the road to Emmaus. Oh, our hearts yearn within us. Hey, stay with us, guy. Uh, or, hey, we wish to see Jesus. We've heard about him. We want him. Uh, or like the Ethiopian eunuch, what's stopping me from being baptized right now? Look, there's... That's what every sermon is designed... That's the whole purpose of the sermon. That's what it's to, to do. Hey, where's Jesus? I want him. And then the church says, here's Jesus, right here. And you say, now that I know about him and I want him, here's the place where I go and I can finally meet him. Okay? So, you are fed in that way, not intellectually, but spiritually. Of course, you can be fed intellectually too, but that's not the, the main point, okay? Let's speak this again. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Okay, the first, the first big question before I look at the catechism with you is this. What is the heart of Jesus? Or better, what is in the, the heart of Jesus? What characterizes the heart of Jesus? Love. Love, correct. So, if he is going to raise up for you shepherds to shepherd you according to his heart, then what should the shepherd look like? Yes. How should he treat the people? Love. With love. There's only one unforgivable sin in the ministry, and that is not loving your people. Or treating them in such a way that they think you don't love them. That is unforgivable. Um, like St. Paul writes, don't let just anybody go on to become a, a pastor because don't you know... Uh, we are all going to be judged much more harshly than, uh, than everyone else. And so it's best that we sort of be careful about who we let do that for the sake of their own person and the judgment they're going to be receiving. So uh, anyway, keep that in mind. What is the heart of Jesus? It is love, which means that a shepherd, according to Jesus' heart, must have what as his primary characteristic? Love. What does God's word say to bishops, pastors, and preachers? The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, hospitable, able to teach, not quarrelsome, not but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. The overseer, why the word overseer? 
I have a serious answer and a funny answer. I'll give you the funny answer first. Because Lutherans are afraid of the word bishop. <laughs> so, because the word here really is actually bishop. Uh, that's the funny answer. The, the, the real answer is overseer is the job of a bishop. So what, is, what does a bishop do? According to his own name, what is the bishop? He is the overseer. So when Lutherans talk about bishops, who is a bishop? Yeah, technically speaking, every pastor is a bishop because every pastor is the overseer of his congregation. Now, if we want to talk about hierarchy, though, who is the bishop? Jesus. Oh, well, yes. But I mean, like, the hierarchy of church structure on earth. Yeah, Tech typically, people would call the district president the bishop. Although, if you want to be really historic, the circuit visitor is actually the bishop because he is the overseer of all of the different congregations in the circuit, or as the Roman Catholics would call a circuit, a diocese, and then the district president would technically be like the archbishop. He is the bishop of the bishops. And then the guy above him is the bishop above the bishops above the bishops, and so there's always a bishop, somebody who's in charge. Your pastor is your local bishop because he is your overseer. He is the one who is above you. But there is somebody above your pastor, and there is somebody above the somebody over your pastor. There's a hierarchy that goes all the way up. So, but anyway, so that's bishop. There's two ways to use it, as, a, as in a specific position of authority or generally as, hey, um, the overseer. So that's why it's used here, because it's talking about the office of the ministry, not a specific person um, in, a, in, a, in a bishopric. So the pastor, the bishop, the overseer, must be above <laughs> reproach, which means what? To be above reproach. I'll put it to you in the colloquial. Squeaky clean. <laughs> The pastor's got to be squeaky clean. The pastor can't have any controversies or even a hint of the, that kind of stuff. So one example is, is it a good idea for the pastor's children to serve in positions of authority in the congregational structure of that pastor's congregation? Probably not, because even if his children are very upstanding and responsible, what is there always the appearance of? Conflict of interest and nepotism. So if the pastor is to be above reproach, then he must avoid any kind of a situation that would cause scandal or reflect poorly upon his ministry, not because he wants to save face, but because he is the representative of Christ and the representative of the church. So the pastor has to be squeaky clean, because what happens if the pastor is not squeaky clean? He loses, well, yeah, he loses the confidence of his people and of 
his community and of anybody who was even on the fence about Christianity. Here's a really good example, the Roman Catholic scandals. And this is not me singling them out and saying, boy, it's sure great that we're not Catholics, because guess who also has those scandals? The Missouri Synod has them, the Baptist Church has them. Just because we have priests that can get married doesn't mean that we don't have scandals too. Okay, so let's let me get, get, uh, have us get off our high horses there. But what has happened as a result of a few very bad men in the office of the ministry? People say, see, the Catholic Church. Exactly. See, look at that. Well, they might have been sort of relatively isolated incidences and, and maybe not dealt with according to what they should have been, but the bottom line is that now people see pastors that were not above reproach, and it doesn't only impact the individuals, it affects the entire church. That's a really big important thing. The pastor needs to be squeaky clean for himself, for his ministry, for his people, for his local community, and for the church at large. The husband of but one wife, I'm going to say one thing about this, this isn't only a reference to your pastor shouldn't probably be a polygamist, uh, no sister wives and the parsonage. It really also refers to the fidelity of the pastor so that you really shouldn't have a pastor who's gotten divorced and remarried a bunch of times. In fact, if you are at the seminary and you even break off an engagement, they kick you out of the seminary at least for like a three to five year period and you have to take a break before you come back in uh, to, to do that. And, and of course they do that um, if you are at the seminary and get a divorce while you're there too. And then when you come back, they, you have to go through a whole process of examination uh, just even for the one divorce. But, so it's sort of frowned upon that a pastor then get a divorce because infidelity within his own marriage and ho home life does not reflect well upon the fidelity that is demanded of the office of the ministry. Again, very, very high standards here. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Look, not, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. Now there are characteristics of the office uh, this doesn't mean that everyone's going to be the best at them. So the pastor needs to be able to teach. Does that mean that every pastor is going to be college professor level teacher? No, it doesn't. But it means that the pastor needs to be able to at least stand up in front of you and coherently lead a Bible study. If he can do that, then that's fine. But if he can't even stand up and teach you, if, if every time he tries to teach, everybody's going, I have no idea what he's trying to say, or he's teaching things that are just not true, well, then you've got a problem. So he doesn't have to be the best, doesn't have to be the best preacher, doesn't have to be the most hospitable person. As long as he's doing his very best to, to fulfill all that is demanded of him, that is, that is the best. Uh, and then finally, must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. The last two years that we've done this, she has squawked right at that point from the back and started crying. And I remember that because it's always embarrassing to look at this and say, your children must obey you and then have your child go. Uh, uh, but what it, why is it important that the pastor's family and children be managed well? Because if you can't manage your own household. Right, because if you can't manage your own household, your own children biologically, how are you going to manage the children of the Lord? This is, uh, this is the major point. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. I went a little bit long. But... Um, 
Oh, okay. Yes, can I answer that in just a minute? Just remember it. This is the other thing that I want to say. Um, the pastor is the daddy of the congregation. Uh, all of this, too, about like under shepherds and all that. What that means is the pastor is not your employee. Yes, the pastor is on payroll. Yes. Uh, the pastor has statements and taxes and things like that. And yes, if the congregation chooses to, they can withhold pay from their pastor. They will, they will, and the pastor isn't going to be, or shouldn't be, coming and throwing a big fit about, hey, you give me my money. Why? Because the pastor is not to be a lover of money. It is always a blessing that the congregation takes care of the pastor. And in, in fact, that is expected of the congregation uh, according to the Lord's word. So there's an expectation that as the pastor cares for his people, the people care for his pastor, but they care for each other in different ways. And like husband and wife, they are complementary one to the other. Um, so you know, one thing that you see sometimes is congregations that take advantage of their pastor because they treat the pastor like an employee instead of like a pastor. And then the question is, who is over whom? Am I the one who's over you, or are you the one who has me under your thumb and makes me do what you want? And when push comes to shove, the pastor has to say, mm-mm-mm, do what you want with my salary, but you are not over me, I am over you. And really, what it means that the pastor is under shepherd is sort of like what it means for someone to be a babysitter. You know, is the babysitter the actual parent? No. But what authority does the babysitter have? Yeah, that's right, in the place of the parent. So what authority the parents have, the babysitter has while the parents are away. Uh, so does it really matter to the babysitter if the kids don't like the rules? No. The babysitter is in the unenviable, the unenviable position of saying, I didn't make the rules, the boss made the rules, and you aren't my boss. They're my boss, and even though they're not here right now, I still do what they say. And in the end, who is the one that gives you your reward? You know, the kids might be great and might draw you pictures and give you stickers and all that kind of stuff, and you say, boy, that's really great. But at the end of the day, who writes your paycheck? The parents. And I'm not saying that because I say, well, God's the one that signs off on you paying me money. What I mean by that is, in the end, where is the pastor's real reward? Not from the checks that he gets. Those are just here to support this body and life. In a way, that's the Lord's daily bread being given to the pastor by means of his church. Uh, but the pastor is also, in a very real sense, the person, the head figure of daddy. Uh, and so I had a young man once that was here visiting, and he asked me, well, what's the office of the ministry really like? I'm thinking about going to the seminary, I'm pre-sem right now at Seward. Uh, can you tell me, in your own words, what the, what the ministry is like? And I said, well, sure. Uh, I just hope it doesn't make you want to run away from it. Because the office of the ministry is really pretty much this. It is you being the dad 
of a very large family that is going on a summer vacation road trip and you are driving a big bus full of all of your children and in the back all that you hear is he's touching me she's looking at me and that and you're just your whole ministry is you trying to keep the peace in the back and make sure that the bus is going the right way and that all the rest stops you stop at are nice and clean and then you know every now and then turning around and going Doggone it, don't make me pull this thing over. I'm going to spank you by the side of the road. And that's pretty much what being a pastor is like. And this poor kid was like, really? And I said, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it's great. You know, you love your people and all that. But that's kind of, you know, you have a parental responsibility. Uh, and that sometimes means also exercising discipline. So the way that I often will say it when I talk to some of my pastor friends is sometimes you just got to pull down some pants and give some spankings. And I don't mean that I'm going to be coming to you and saying, all right, go cut your switch and bring it back here. What I mean by that is th there are times when the pastor is, will let things slide. Um, as another pastor once said, you don't actually get to pick your battles because the battles will always come to you whether you pick them or not the real choice is choosing what battles you fight. You're, you're going to be faced with lots of battles. What ones are you going to choose to fight? And um, so the pastors will let some things slide. Some things are more important than others. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, to the really important things, and pe people really start bucking and causing problems, that's when the pastor has the authority to and the responsibility to come down and say, now you knock that off right now. And uh, this is a fabulous congregation because it's been very rare that I actually have ever had to do that because you all get along so well and we are so very spoiled here. Uh, but that is the relationship. And this is also why I say, what is the heart of Jesus? It is love. So that if you have a pastor that has any other priority other than <laughs> loving you, kick him out. He's not worth it. He's a bad pastor. Because the pastor's primary job is to love you in the way that Christ loved his, in the way that Christ loved you, because I am supposed to be Jesus to you, which means I don't actually get a choice in the matter. I have to do it. I have to love you. I have to forgive you your sins. If you tell me you're hungry, I don't even have the choice of thinking about giving you a stone instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg. I have to give you what you ask. I have to feed you. Uh, and that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. The pastor is supposed to love his people and take care of them to the best of his ability to do so. So that's, that's, uh, these are the responsibilities that the pastor is, is to have. And every pastor ought to reflect upon these texts from Scripture and the others in the table of duties. But... They aren't just for the pastor. And I've said this before too. These are also for you. Because what is your pastor supposed to look like? This. So what if your pastor doesn't look like this? What do you do? Do you say, well, he's the pastor we have. I guess we'll have to put up with him. I think we have to fight like heck to get rid of him. <laughs> what do you do? Well, you jump through so many hoops, you can't just. Well, sure, because you can't fire him because he's not your employee. Yeah. 
but so it just keeps dragging the group down. Well, sure, but the the point I'm trying to get at is that the congregation is supposed to hold the pastor accountable. So that if there's ever a time where I am not being hospitable or respectable or able to teach, or if I am not being squeaky clean, or this and that and this and that, it is actually the congregation's responsibility. And this is one of the jobs of the elders as being sort of lay assistants to the pastor, like the helpers for Moses. It's Moses that had to have his arms up, but or, or it's like, you know, Sam Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings. I can't carry the ring, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. I can't carry the burden that you are carrying, Pastor, but I can carry you and help to uphold you while you carry the burden. But what that also means is when you aren't taking up your burden, then I am the one who, who needs to come and hold you accountable and say, now listen here, you're in God's office and God, for our sakes, has commanded and, and set forth that this is how you are to be, and you, you aren't. And again, any pastor that's worth his salt, should that ever be the case where someone comes and says, you know, or like the, the elder, like if Daryl said, can I come to your office this week and have a meeting with you, and then sat down and said, well, I'm very concerned because, you know, the table of duty says that this is how the pastor is supposed to be, and, you know, the congregation and the elders sort of feel like these are things that are lacking. That would be heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking to any pastor worth his salt. Or it should be. It should be heartbreaking because because that means that the pastor has not been working hard enough to do what the Lord has given him to do. And it should be a heartbreaking thing for the congregation to have to do, but in the end, it is a beneficial thing. But the point that I'm trying to make is, even though the question in the catechism says, God's word says this to bishops, pastors, and preachers, it's not saying that because it excludes God's word as being something for you too. This is direct prescription to the pastors. You're supposed to be like this. And it is a description to the laity. Your pastor, he's supposed to be this way. And if he isn't, then you need to hold him accountable. Now, if you have a really, really, really bad pastor who is spouting off heresy, who is destroying the church, who doesn't give a rip about his people, and it's, and it's demonstrably so, and sadly that there are men like that within the office, then yes, the congregation needs to seek to uh, deal with that through the, through the proper channels, which yes, sometimes becomes difficult because often the proper channels can be so laden with bureaucracy that um, things don't happen the way that they ought. Which, or right, or fast enough. Which then brings me to my final point, and then I'll get to your question, and that is what this means as descriptive is sort of a defense for you as a congregation who seeks to call a pastor. Because if this is the way that a pastor is supposed to be, then when you are looking at candidates and praying, that the Lord would guide you in your selection, that you would look at their lives, you would look at their conduct, you would listen to how they speak and preach, you would meet them, you would, uh, um, as the Didache would say, you would 
um, test them to see if they are approved. And you measure them according to the criteria, not the criteria that you want, which is the mistake congregations make often in calling a pastor. What do we want in a pastor instead of what has the Lord said a pastor should be? Because sometimes what the Lord says a pastor should be is not exactly what you want. And in that case, you are the problem because you want somebody who isn't what the Lord has said a pastor is to be. But the reverse is also true where you look at men and you do your very best to ensure that the man you are calling to be your pastor is one who fulfills what the Lord has set in place concerning what a pastor is supposed to be. And that helps to protect you against the situations where you call a pastor because he's a pastor and then he shows up and he's, for lack of a better word, a dud or an unfaithful pastor. Brenda. Um, I understand the criteria and, and the seminary looking at people and, only, and I, I don't know how hard it is to get into the seminary. I know of a guy who had to wait a couple of years because of issues in his personal life. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. What's more important, filling space or preserving the integrity of the office of the ministry and thereby preserving the spiritual integrity of the church? I would say the latter, but then what do you do with, with congregations who don't have any pastors? You deal with it. But hard cases make bad law, and you don't want to set precedents at the seminary based on the fact that there is a need in a congregation. Now, there are programs that exist already to help in specific niche instances, like, uh, say, a rural congregation that needs a pastor but can't really wait, and there's nobody who can come and help. Well, then there's a, there's a program that exists where a, a congregation can essentially raise up a man from excuse me, within their midst to start serving in a lay role uh, and then who will be doing a sort of a uh, sped up, abridged seminary education because of the lack of luxury of time that then would be raised up to be the pastor but only in that specific place. So there's an example of something that exists to help in a situation like that where you can raise up a man who then becomes a, a pastor, but he's not allowed to go around and be a pastor at any other church because his education was not the full seminary education. It was designed to fill the specific niche of need in this specific place. Uh, but generally speaking, there is always going to be a need for, for pastors. And one of the other problems, Brenda, that is one of the other problems that we see in the culture today is that there might be a great need for pastors, but in what settings? Because you see a lot of churches that are like, here's my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's Lutheran church that's been here 
multi-generations, but we've got five people now that come to church on Sunday. We can barely afford to turn our lights on, and we want a pastor, and there's three other Lutheran churches within five miles, but we're not going to do anything with, that, with those churches because we want to be our church, because, frankly, Christianity in America is dying. So part of the need for pastors... The other side of that is the need for congregations to be more community-like instead of a bunch of independent entities, which I understand is, can be a difficult thing, and heaven knows many people here understand that that can be a difficult thing. But the reality is when you get to the point where the church actually can't survive, holding on to the trappings is going to kill you. It's, the, it's going to be the final nail in the coffin, and then the church really does die. So there's that need as well. There's a need for pastors, because there always will be, but there's a need also for pastors that can come into churches and acknowledge the difficulties and help to uh, bring people together and consolidate. Now, this congregation is a byproduct of consolidation of, of sorts, and that generally can be a very good thing, even as it is a very difficult thing. But in, to be frank with you, I think within at least the next 10 years, what we're going to see is the way that seminary education happens even now, it's not going to be sustainable. Because the number of churches is going down, the number of Christians is going down, the number of men going to the seminary is going down. There were times when the classes were up in the hundreds, and now, like my class was 35. So, you know, they've gone up a little bit. It's so I think like joint classes between both our seminaries are graduating maybe 110 people now. But, but think about that. Think about how many pastors are dying or retiring and how many we're replacing them with. It's just a drop in a bucket. So that the way that we train up our pastors is eventually going to have to change. And I've submitted a paper for the, some um, synodical conference in October We'll see if they like it. I don't think they're going to. But the whole point of the paper is dealing with this issue of let's be communities, not congregations, and let's look at what the early church structure was when the church was just beginning and see how we can model the church now after that. And ideally what seminary education would be then is what it was in the old days where you have faithful men who are pastors who then raise up, so like John and uh, Seth Oswald, two very nice young men, both of whom I think would be very nice pastors, uh, the way that I would do it is say, all right, you two, uh, do you want to be a pastor? Do you think that would be good? And they would say, well, I don't know, um, maybe. And I say, if you said maybe, then you're with me now. And then they become the, this is why candle lighters and acolytes are different. Someone who lights, who, someone who is a candle lighter does what? Lights candles. Someone who is an acolyte does what? Is a disciple. Uh, so, the acolyte would be like the altar boy. That's why that position exists, so that they are up helping the pastor do all kinds of stuff, that the boys would come here, and I would teach them things. We'd go through Greek. They would follow me around. They'd do visits with me, and they'd spend three, four, five, six years doing that with me until I got to the point where I said, I think that these young men are ready to be off on their own. 
and then I would take them to the church, to the, whoever the bishop or the president or is, and say, I present you with these two fine young men, and I, am, I have trained them up, and I think they're ready to be in the ministry. And then the church says, okay, we'll test them out and see. And if they are, then they say, okay, they're ready, and they are needed here and here. And I think, eventually, we are going to reach a point where, where the formal education model that we have for seminaries just isn't really going to work, especially split between two seminaries, so that at the very least, what we may end up having to do is consolidate even the seminaries into one central seminary, if the synod still wants to do, do that, which it should, because the synod exists to train pastors and missionaries. Um, that's a really, really long answer to your question, mostly because your question has more facets than I think you realize to it. But the bottom line is, hard cases make bad law, so just because there is a need doesn't mean that we fast-track fast everybody through, because then what you do is, sure, you've met the physical need, but you are not meeting the spiritual need, and the spiritual need is the one that is the most important. Bob. Correct, yeah, that's pretty true. Uh, assessment of the two seminaries graduating is about 100, 120, yeah. maybe a little bit less. So that has always kind of bothered me since I have heard of that statistic. Yeah, so here's the question then. What is the best way to fix the problem? You be me. What's the best way to fix the problem, friends? There's a few key points. Encourage those who seek to be in the office of administration. Yes, ev points even more fundamental than that. First, raise your kids in the community of the church. Pray in the home. Don't let church be something we go to on Sunday morning or Wednesday evenings, because it isn't. That's the divine service. That's mass. But the church, church extends beyond that. Um, Abraham, Luther has a quote about how God establishes pastors, but every man becomes a priest in the tabernacle of his own home. So you are the one, you are the bishop of your home. Train your kids up. And on that front, have kids. Get married, have kids, baptize your babies, raise them up in the church, teach your kids that church is the most important thing in their life, teach your kids that sometimes relocating for a job is not as good as relocating for a church, Teach your kids that church is more important than sports, than music, than any kind of other extracurricular, that this is life. Teach them to love everything here, not to think of it as a law. You don't go to church because you're required to. You go to church because this is how you live and you want to live and you love it. And Jesus loves you. And then live it in your communities, in your homes, in your communities, in your church. Live this way. Create communities that are focused around the gospel and the sacraments of Christ. If you haven't noticed, 
uh, I've not been flying by the seat of my pants these last four years. There has been some strategy involved. And the, all, the, the ultimate goal, and it should be the ultimate goal of every pastor, is to orient his congregation so at the very heart and center of everything is Jesus Christ given for you in his sacraments. Where do you live? You live from Jesus. How do you love? You love from Jesus. He is at the center, and when you start having that orientation, and you start orienting that, and you start loving your neighbor, which starts in the congregation, you start loving the person next to you because you, they communed with you. Then you start loving the, you know, the people in your pew, then uh, your, your, your row, and then the whole church, and then the church starts doing things together, and it grows the community, and then you start doing things around, and the whole community grows, and we're blessed here because all the other pastors here think the same way, and all the other pastors here are trying to do the very same thing. Guess what? We might not agree on everything doctrinally, but doggone it, we all love the Lord. And I don't ever question the fervent faith or the sincerity of the other pastors here, even the ones that I disagree with. In fact, some of the best conversations I've ever had have been with the pastors right here in Mount City. And none of them are on the same doctrinal page as we are. Eventually, then, what I think will end up happening is that the church will shrink to the point where we won't even be able to sustain denominations anymore. And there'll only be two kinds of Christians. There'll be Christians that want the sacraments and who uphold that they are what Jesus says they are, and then the Christians who are still Christians but don't believe that the sacraments are what Jesus says they are. Sacramentalists and non-sacramentalists. Um, sort of like what the early church was. The early church wasn't ever wholly united, but they got over themselves. And someday we'll have to do that too. And then, in the midst of all of this, having kids, raising them up, getting married, teaching them about the importance of family and church and all of this, identify young men in your congregation or your community who are upstanding men, like what the apostles did. Well, how do we replace? Well, let's pick out men of, who are full of the Spirit, uh, who are of good reputation, and raise these men up as pastors within the church, train them up. You identify them. The church needs to start being a little bit more proactive about saying, hey, these people are going to be really good pastors, and I'm going to start dogging them and saying, hey, listen, you're going to be a really good pastor. If that's even a twinkling of an idea in your head, hold on to it and think about it and, and do that. And as long as it's a twinkling, I'm going to be dogging you about it. Instead of just saying, well, you know... Um, if you think you maybe want to be a pastor, you can go to the seminary and talk to an admissions counselor and they can talk to you. What kind of limp-wristed pastor says that? I'm sorry, because this is not a hot mic, but give me a break. What kind of pastor doesn't know his own people, doesn't know his own kids, and is able to say something like I just said about those highly intelligent and very nice Oswald boys? that I think that they would make very good pastors and, and say that, you know, what pastors, well, you know, I'm not going to be spiritually invested in you, um, but maybe this, maybe you go, go there and blah, blah, blah. no, come on. You take it into your own hands and start raising up men to be that and start raising up women to be good, God-fearing, Christian young women who assist with the church who are active here, who go out and care for people, who take care of the sick and the elderly, who uh, are willing to assist with a funeral meal, who are willing to uh, visit shut-ins and, and do things like that. Um, I mean, the men in the congregation should visit shut-ins too. There are parishioners, and we should write to our shut-ins. We should, you know, all of this, becoming a community instead of being 
picks on a, on a page, like, well, Synod sends in our, their request annually about, well, who, what is your membership statistics? And we begrudgingly fill that out only because we, re we recognize the fourth commandment. If the fourth commandment didn't exist, we would not fill that out because I think it's silly because the statistics don't matter. What matters is the proclamation of the gospel and the gathering of faithful Christians around the sacraments and the gospel. Anyway, I don't, I don't even know how we got here. This is like, this is like the motto of my, my life. How did we get here? Um, today, we're going we're gonna to look at this hymn, which is the hymn of the month, and it's a paraphrase of the Athanasian Creed, which is the, you know, the big long creed we, we speak on Trinity. So we're not actually going to speak the creed responsively as we have done in the past Next week, Trinity Sunday, we'll be singing this hymn just as the hymn of the day, the office hymn, and, uh, and this is the paraphrase. So uh, that you have that. We can start learning it today. But I also want to talk a little bit about um, the Athanasian Creed in general. One, because when's the last time somebody ever talked to you about the Athanasian Creed? Probably never. <laughs> we actually did a Bible study on one. Did you really? Well, good. Uh, it's an important creed but it's sort of ignored because you only say it once, maybe twice a year, and then we just kind of don't talk about it. So for that reason, but also because the fellow who wrote the text and the fellow who wrote the tune are nobodies. <laughs> There's nothing to say about them except for they wrote this hymn. Um, this tune is a tune from the TLH. Um, so it should be familiar. The, the name of the tune is My Maker Be Thou Nigh, which is TLH 335. Now, I don't, I don't actually know that hymn, so you maybe do, if you're more familiar with TLH than I am, like the, our TLH encyclopedia, Mr. Heitman, uh, <laughs> who is separated from his TLH here. Otherwise, I, I know that he'd be looking it up right now. But uh, the fellow who, who wrote the uh, text is pretty much only known for doing the translation to a lamb goes uncomplaining forth that appeared in the TLH hymnal. So that's really the only way that you would know his name. Otherwise, everything else that the hymn writer did is in the ELH, which is where this hymn is from, which is the black hymnal from the Norwegian Synod up in Mankato. I've talked about that hymnal before. It's a very good hymnal. Very, it's, it's in many ways a very good combination of TLH and the LSB. So it doesn't mess around with, doesn't mess around with fruity translations. Uh, it keeps, keeps the translation solid, but then still incorporates things that fix some of the little issues with TLH. Um, very good hymnal, but no, not perfect. Um, so anyway, that's... Th those are the people who wrote the hymn. The hymn is a paraphrase, um, which means it's basically the text of the Athanasian Creed, but slightly expanded, so it explains it a little bit more. Uh, as with all paraphrases, it's not just a retelling, but um, an expounding upon. And uh, then the language is just slightly different, too, because you have to make it fit in meter and rhyme. But I want to talk about the Athanasian Creed itself just very briefly, why it exists, um, what it's for, what it talks about, where it comes from, and all of this. So um, 
I actually, I have a PowerPoint, because there were so many things I wanted to show you that I, I thought, well, it's going to look stupid if I just have a bunch of pictures and I just, so I'll make it look pretty uh, and, and have an actual thing. So we'll look at this in, in just a minute. Um, I have a simplified diagram of it right on your handout because I didn't know how easy it was going to be to see this. The Athanasian Creed is one of the three so-called ecumenical creeds, um, which means that uh, you know, ecumenism, ecumenical means a gathering of all people. So when we talk about being ecumenical, it means that we're all together despite uh, or without denominational boundaries. So ecumenism can be a good thing, like with this ministerial alliance, wherein we get together despite boundaries and have discussions and work for a common good within a community, and we pray together and talk about scripture together as a body, um, even though we're all from different traditions. Now that's really good, and we should be encouraged to do more of that, including the laity. You should, you should be able to get together with people and read scripture and pray, uh, and not say like, <clears throat> Wisconsin Synod, oh, if you're not Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, then I can't even pray with you, uh, which is a point of doctrine in that church. So uh, where ecumenism gets to be sort of not so good is in like joint services. So we do a lot with the ministerial alliance here, using that as an example again. But when is the last time you saw the Lutheran pastor appearing on one of the stages with all the other pastors conducting a service together? Never, not in the last four years at least. And the reason for that is because ecumenism goes so far where it's good, but when it comes to like a joint confession of faith, we're not confessing the same things. And I can't, I can't do things that are in a public setting, you know, around the altar when my altar says one thing and their altar says another thing. Because then we're pretending like we're the same and we really aren't the same. So we can be ecumenical to a degree, um, and then the lack of ecumenism is good. But anyway, the ecumenical creeds then, what that means is these are th the three big-time chief creeds of the church that expound upon the faith of Christianity as a whole that every single Christian can say. That every single Christian can say and should say. Uh, whether you are a Baptist or an Episcopalian, or a Catholic or a Lutheran, you all can get together and speak these three creeds because these three creeds are the entirety of the Christian faith, all the points of doctrine that really matter. Even, and this is really difficult for me to say, as you can imagine, because of my emphasis on the sacraments, but there's nothing in the creeds about the sacraments. So even what you think about the sacraments becomes a less fundamental doctrine of the church than who is God and what does he do for you? So is it Jesus or isn't it Jesus? Well, we're going to disagree on that. But can we agree that Jesus gives us himself and sustains us? Well, sure. Okay. Because that's what the creeds confess. You see that? So they're ecumenical. They're for everybody. And I know there are some groups of Christians that, that don't speak the creeds, but they should because the creeds are the tie that binds us all together in the Christian faith. Um, the Athanasian Creed is named after St. Athanasius, who was a Nicene, Council of Nicaea era uh, 
church father, very, very smart uh, man, and he didn't actually write the Athanasian Creed. And it's attributed to him because of the themes that the Athanasian Creed deals with, and there are two of them, and these two themes are the ones that at the Council of Nicaea, St. Athanasius was vehement about defending. And the first one is uh, the Trinity, that who, God, who is God? Well, God is triune. And who are the persons of the Trinity? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when it comes to the Athanasian Creed, the question is, well, what does, ex you know, basically, explain the Trinity to me? Which is why we speak this on Trinity Sunday, because that's one of the issues it addresses. What is the deal with the Trinity? And with all these creeds, they arise to address false teachings in the church, to make the, the faith of Christianity crystal clear, so that you can't say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Trinity. Ah, you don't get to do that. That is a fundamental thing. Uh, and it, so, who is the Trinity? Does the Trinity exist? What does the Trinity look like? Who are the persons? How do they interact? That's all in the Athanasian Creed and stuff that St. Athanasius talked about, even though he didn't put pen to paper. The second thing is, who is Jesus? And uh, what is he like? And what kind of nature does he have? And what does he do? So the Nicene Creed is very much about Jesus, which is why that's the Eucharistic Creed, because we all, it's all about the nature of Jesus. You see that it expands upon Jesus being of one substance with the Father, which we'll talk about in a second, because it's combating the heresy of Arianism. And so it all deals with the flesh of Jesus and Jesus being true God and true man. And the Athanasian Creed expands even more upon that. This is who Jesus is, and also because he's a part of the Trinity, this is who he is, okay? So there is this thing called the scutum fide, which I'm gonna, uh, scutum fide, which is Latin, it means the shield of faith. Uh, it's also called the shield of the Trinity, but that's what you have on your paper here. This little, and of course, anytime you try to explain the Trinity, you become a heretic because you can't explain a mystery. This is as close as we can get to understanding, and the reason why this thing is heretical is because it separates the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and makes them appear to be separate entities when in fact they aren't. But, as an illustration it works, so you see the Father is, so this is just the Latin, but um, pater, non est uh, filius. The, the Father is not the Son. The Father non est the Spiritus Sanctus. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son non est Spiritus Sanctus. The Son is not. So these three persons of the Trinity interact with each other, but the Son is not the Father. They are distinct. The Spirit is not the Son, they are distinct. There are three distinct persons. But, while the Father is not the Spirit, the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now, again, the problem is, it makes you think that maybe there are three different people, and it's sort of like Captain Planet, where Father, Son, Spirit, wing, and then God! No, like, I don't know, Power Rangers or Voltron or something. Let's all come together and now we are bring God! Made of three parts that come together. And it's, so that's the problem with the diagram is that's the, the way that it's written out, that's what it's saying. And it isn't what it means to say, but again, how do you explain a mystery in a way that isn't <laughs> heretical? You can't. Sort of like um, St. Patrick's Clover. The clover illustration. Well, that's actually a heresy. 
uh, modalism. So how do you explain the Trinity without committing heresy? Well, you can't. Which, by the way, there's a, there's a channel on YouTube called Lutheran Satire, which is a bunch of cartoons made by a fellow named Hans Feeney, and they are hilarious. But there is one in particular that I always want people to watch in preparation for Trinity Sunday, and it is St. Patrick trying to explain the Trinity, and Patrick is trying to explain, and they keep calling him out on how all of his explanations are just heresies. And then he gets mad and just says, well, it's a mystery, we can't understand it. And oh, now we understand it. <laughs> so look it up, Lutheran satire. But anyway, so I like this image because you see how many, how many people are standing here. Well, there's one guy, but how many faces does he have? Three. Now that's also a heresy, but we'll just ignore it for now. And then you also have, this is St. John the eagle, St. Matthew the man, St. Luke the ox, and St. Mark the lion. So you'll, you also have the, the evangelists surrounding this doctrine of the Trinity, which is expounding upon the nature of God. Now the reason why I skipped this other one, we're going to go back to this. This is another example. Um, it's, it's the same thing. This is... This is um, What's it called? Shorthand. This is Latin shorthand. So don't worry if you can't understand it. But it says the same thing. Father, Son, and the Spirit are God, but they are not one another. But then this is a knight who is labeled as the Christian. And this is on his shield, the scutum fides, the shield of faith. And then um, you can't see he's got a sword. And then up here in the picture are the seven deadly sins. So he's going with the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, which talks about who God is and is a confession of the Christian faith, and he goes to fight in battle against sins. Now, tell me that the medieval manuscripts are not really cool. Some people think, well, they're primitive. That, the people don't look like real people. Well, cartoon people don't like, like real people either, but we still think that they, you know, they, they still have a purpose. So anyway, I love, there's a lot of symbolism. And then here's, this is just a simplified view like what you have on your sheet. Father, Son, and Spirit. I like the shape, uh, the, the triangle. Now when you look at Holy Trinity, sort of the way, the, the, the symbol, oh, it's on the bulletin. I don't have a, oh, here it is, yeah. Look at the very top of the bulletin. Right there, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. You see that's our sort of, our brand uh, and, and that symbol right in the middle there, it's called a triket triketra, and that is a, or a trifoil, triketra is, um, is the fancier one, and you see that it, there's three bits that are all knotted together. Well, it's, a, it's in a triangular shape like this. They're knotted together because they're intertwined, they're inseparable, but, but also distinct. All of this comes from the shapes. So, Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God, but they are not one another. Now, um, let's talk about St. Athanasius. One of the things that St. Athanasius is really famous for is his defense of Christianity in, in the face of Arianism uh, at the, Nice the Council of Nicaea. St. Nicholas is also famous for his defense of, Christ, of uh, you know, the teachings about Christ at the Council of Nicaea, but not because he was an eloquent speaker. St. Nicholas is remembered because he punched Arius in the face. He said, you're a heretic, and punched him in the face 
in the middle of this council. It'd be like going to a synodical convention and having one guy at the microphone talking and everybody going and murmuring and then one guy going up and saying, you're wrong, and slugging him right there in front of everybody. Well, that's what St. Nicholas did. Uh, so St. Athanasius is remembered for combating heresy in a more eloquent way. And so here is an icon of him. He's got the creed here. But the thing that's really interesting is you can't really see it down here. He's standing on top of a little man. And he's labeled Arius. So he didn't actually beat up Arius like St. Nicholas did. But in the representation of him in this icon, his doctrine is uh, of Christology, of who Jesus is, is beating out the doctrine of Arianism. Now... What is, we're going to skip this. I don't have nearly enough time to explain that. Okay, let's, let's look at this. This is where all of these three ecumenical creeds come from, and this is the importance of the Athanasian creed. Um, the first council, so you, you'll, when I explain it, you'll sort of see how it works. First, what we're doing is dealing with Jesus. Is Jesus fully God or is Jesus fully human? Yes, good answer. Jesus is fully God and is fully human. But Council of Nicaea really is dealing with the fact that Jesus is fully God. We're going to affirm that Jesus really wasn't just some dude. Jesus really was God and he really did die. Well, here's the heresy, Arianism. Arianism said, well, Jesus is not really God. He's uh, something else. So whatever God is made of, Jesus was made of something else. Sort of like how man is, you know, he's not made of the dust of the earth like man is, but he's made of something else. God created the sun. They say, no, God is fully, or Jesus is fully God. He was not created. Well, there's the Athanasian Creed, or the, um, excuse me, the Nicene Creed, which also doesn't really come about until 381, which is why people sometimes call it the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. And if people say that, then you have my permission to slug them because they're being conceited. No, don't do that. I'm not to be given to violence or quarrelsome. Um, so we deal with the fact that Jesus is fully God and that he is fully man. And this takes place within the Nicene Creed that happens between the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea and the uh, First Council of Constantinople. Um, this reaffirms what was confessed at Nicaea, and also then condemned Apollinarianism, um, which we, we don't have time to talk about. Now, the third council of Ephesus in 431. Now, we're not, now we've affirmed, yeah, Jesus is God and man, holy both. But what does that mean, that he is both God and man? How many persons does Jesus have? Yeah, that was a trick question. Good work. How many natures does Jesus have? Two. Yeah, you say that. One person, two natures, because of these two creeds. So this square is the diagram. The first two creeds dealt with Jesus as divine. The second two dealt with the relationship between the human and the divine in Jesus. So the third council of Ephesus condemned Nestorianism, that there is only one person, Nestorianism says there are two persons. One is a God person, so that you know, when Jesus weeps, he weeps because he's a man. When Jesus does a miracle, he does a miracle because he's God. But you can't do that because you're separating the two. 
Okay, and then finally, here we are, fourth council, which is Chalcedon, 451. Everything that you believe about Jesus comes from this council. Everything that we confess, which then gives birth to the Athanasian Creed, comes here at last. Expansion upon the Nicene Creed that was birthed from Nicaea and Constantinople, worked on in Ephesus, and then affirmed and expanded here, Council of Chalcedon. There are two natures. Jesus is one, but there are still two distinct natures. That's why now, uh, when you look at the Athanasian Creed, it is so nitpicky about everything because it's taking all these different ideas and focusing them down, boiling them down to the simplest way that you can confess them without falling into any of the multiple heresies that were uh, being combated. And these are all the different heresies so, and the different councils. So we're focusing on one person. Well, there's two persons, human and divine, and there's also one human divine nature. Uh, and then here is human and divine. So I'll leave this up. You can look at this. But this is all about um, the different heresies that, um, that the creeds were combating. So uh, with that, we've got to go because we ran a little bit late. But this stuff is super interesting, the creed. You have the entire Athanasian creed here. And I give you mm, scripture references for everything. So if anybody ever tells you, oh, you confess a creed, but that's not in the Bible, all you have to do is say, well, actually, everything in the creed is from the Bible. So we'll see you at the altar.